Welcome. This is All the Fuck In, a podcast from two entrepreneurs about showing up for social justice in your work. This isn't your typical capitalist-focused entrepreneurial business podcast. There are already plenty of those. We're here because we've been craving voices rooted in activism, justice, and integrity with those values. These are conversations about all things business and entrepreneurship, but from a radical perspective that says we don't have to choose between social justice values and being successful in our work. This won't be a place where we claim to have all the answers. Our intention is to offer guidance and support while also encouraging our listeners to discover and live into more questions. We believe these conversations require ongoing practice and a consistent dedication to unlearning. If you're ready to go all the fuck in on what matters most while creating an abundant life, you're in the right place. And a quick note on our content, we believe self-care is radical and non-negotiable in the work of both justice and entrepreneurship. So some of these conversations include mention of trauma, both from a systemic and often racialized perspective and in relationship to experiences like sexual violence. We hope you do what you need to take care of yourself while listening, even if that means pausing and returning to an episode at another time or skipping it altogether. And we're back. Um, today we're joined by Asami. It's Martins, right? That's how you pronounce your last name. Great. Okay. Um, Asami, we we all know each other from um, the world of Instagram and also the world of Michelle Cassandra Johnson and, and Skill in Action. Um, so Asami, would you like to share a bit about yourself? You can start with um, your identities, your social location, and your astrological placements, whatever feels resonant or relevant in this moment. Sure. Um, my name is Asami Martins. Um, I am a first-generation um, Japanese immigrant living in Jojoke, which is Montreal, Canada. Um, I'm a middle-class um, cisgendered woman. Um, I am married to a Japanese Canadian um, man. Um, what else? Ooh, um, I'm a sun uh, Aquarius and Leo moon rising, both moon and rising. Ooh, double Leo. I know I'm very hot <laughs> and fiery. Yeah, they're all three fire signs, aren't they? <laughs> um, Aquarius, I think it's air sign. Oh, it's air. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Say, right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Laura, but my... you have Aquarius in your chart too? Okay. The Chani app tells me I am an Aquarius rising and Aquarius moon. However, in other things, it says Pisces rising. So I don't know, but I definitely have an Aquarius moon. Okay. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, oh, yeah. You're the- visionary. Yeah. I mean, I like to think so, but we, <laughs> I feel like we've had a lot of get, well, there's been a lot of fire signs, a lot of Leo and a lot of um, Aquarius in people's charts, which mm-hmm. makes sense if you're kind of doing this work, you know? Yep. Yeah. So Asami, will you tell us about the work that you do for the listeners who aren't familiar with you and, and your offerings? 
Sure. So I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a, um, also a mentor as well. Um, I've been teaching yoga for 12 years now. Um, and uh, I also um, run an organization called Our Colorful Yoga. It is a nonprofit organization demand diversity and representation in yoga communities around um, Montreal, I would say, but actually it's kind of spreading everywhere, which is great. Um, we started this, our colorful yoga last year in June. So it's still, it, we're almost at the one year mark. Um, we still like, still feel like a baby. We're still a baby and we're still learning. Um, it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, and for me, like juggling justice work and, and also, um, consistently teaching is something that I want to continue to offer to my mm. students in my communities. Mm. And I realized I forgot to ask you for your pronouns, which I know because we're watching each other on Zoom and everybody's pronouns are in their usernames. Yay. Um, but would you please share your pronouns with us too? Sure. Um, my pronouns are she, her. Great. Thank you, Asami. Um, Lauren, did you have any follow-up questions to that one? I, I could keep going, but... Yeah, actually, kind of going back to identities and social locations. So do you, was Japanese your first language? Yes. Okay. And then do you also speak French because you're in Canada? Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of. yeah. So. <laughs> I'm bilingual in Japanese and English. French is like, I could get by, but mm -hmm. Montreal is such a bilingual city. So if they know that I'm struggling with French, they will switch it to French right away. Um, I kind of like understand some of it and then I answer back in English. So, but I actually um, contemplating on it just right before coming on to this call. Um, when I first moved to uh, Montreal, like when I was 16, I got put into a public, public high school and um, I had to learn French from like grade 10, grade, grade 10 level. I, I didn't understand anything. And my French teacher was a little bit mean that he didn't want to exempt me for anything. He wanted me to do all the presentation and writing. I'm like, how can I, how can I write French when I don't know alphabet? <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, especially because by the time you're in 10th grade, because I took French starting from maybe seventh or eighth grade and it was pretty advanced grammar and stuff by the time we were in high school. So dang. And back then I didn't speak much English. Mm. So I'm learning English and then I have to learn new language, French. Mm. I'm like, my brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> Yeah, whose does? It just sounds like such an insensitive and all, and self. <laughs> was it was the was the instructor white by any chance? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like a very white thing to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. And how did you? Oh, go ahead. I, I you're probably gonna ask the same thing. I was curious what brought maybe you or you and your family to Canada. Yeah. So. My last name is Martins um, because my mom remarried to an American guy um, and uh, he was teaching in my city where I grew up in Japan. Um, he's a um, university professor and then he got a job at McGill University here in Montreal um, and that was when we were like when I was 16 uh, 2003 so we said let's move to Canada. Um, and, um, you know, even though Japan is 
um, Japan is a beautiful country. I always had a dream to move to America or North America.、Yeah. Um, I think I already had this ideology and idealization towards white culture.、Um, Because, because when, since I was young, I was always watching white TV shows and white movies. And,、um, and I always dreamed of living in America and having the American dream. So when my parents said, let's move to Canada, I was like, yes, yes, I want to move to Canada.、Um, so that's, that's how I moved here with my parents.、Um, and then after six years,、um, my father, my dad, my stepdad,、um, Had another job offer in Sydney, Australia. So we moved to Sydney. Wow. And then in 2012, I came back here.、Mm. So my parents still live in Sydney, Australia. I'm by myself here.、Mm. So much transition. Like you've been so many far flung places,、yeah. like relative to where you started. So that's so interesting. And I, it's also really interesting to me that you were growing up watching like white. I'm guessing probably more American versus Canadian、um, TV. That's really interesting. And then that that informed how you felt about it before you ever moved here. Yeah.、Um, my mom is a Japanese language teacher. So、oh. I lived in a countryside of Japan, but we had a lot of、um, Canadian and American British people coming to teach English in my city. And my mom was the one who, were, who was teaching. Um, Japanese to them. So I had a lot of、um, foreigners come to our home, you know, having parties and they were speaking English. So I was always curious about the language and all the food they brought. It was so different.、Uh-huh. <laughs> Devil's egg and like turkey. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs>、um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the reason that I was very interested in、um, North American culture. And、um, I was also、um, going to, I was o- also going to、um, Catholic school in my city as well. And that education system really pushed English、um, language.、Mm. So a lot of people don't realize that I didn't grow up here because of my pronunciation. Because most of people, if you grew up in Japan, you will actually have a little bit of Japanese accent in certain words. But I try as much as I can to not to show that, which is good and bad,、mm-hmm. you know, assimilation, assimilation culture. But、mm-hmm. it comes up to me sometimes that accent comes up.、Um, and also, I'm easy to pick up accent. So if I'm speaking to Canadian, I'll get a Canadian accent. If、mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Americans, I get American accent. When I lived in Sydney, I got Australian accent. <laughs> I was living in Singapore for a couple of months. That time I got Singaporean accent. So everybody's like, Where are you from? <laughs> You're from everywhere. Exactly. That's what I say. Global citizen. <laughs> And Sami, what brought you back to, to Canada when you returned on your own?、Um, so, right before I moved to Sydney, I met my husband. And、um, like, that was April 20. Um, 2009,、mm-hmm. and then I was moving in June, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I fell in love、mm-hmm. hardcore. So, we did long distance for three years, three years between Sydney and Montreal. And,、um, you know, we were both busy. I was a student, I was teaching yoga, he was a student as well. 
Um, and when I moved back in 2012, we wanted to try, I wanted to try living close to him if it's going to work or not, you know, like long distance could work if you trust each other, but close distance, you have to be in each other's face all the time and see if it's going to work or not. Um, so that's the decision that I made to come back here for at least one year to see. And it worked well. So we got married. Mm, amazing. That's such a sweet story. I just love yeah. that. I love love right now. <laughs> <laughs> love is great. Love is great. Um, and I know... Um, you know, one thing Tristan and I were both curious about is how you came to yoga. So it sounds like you've been teaching yoga quite a long time if you were teaching it when you were in Sydney. Yeah. So the first time that I tried yoga was 2010, no, not 2000, 2004, um, when I first moved to Montreal. And because I was missing my friends back home in Japan and I didn't speak much English here, um, my mom's like, let's go to this yoga class. It was at a church basement and um, um, it was a 12 weeks course and I was really out of shape that time. I, I was really depressed as well because I was skipping school because I didn't want to go to school. And my mom, I think my mom saw me struggling. So she wanted to kind of spend time with me. Um, so she took, she took me to a yoga class and I hated it. Mm. I couldn't do anything downward facing dog. It hurts. Mm. Um, and it felt weird, you know, in back in 2004, it wasn't a major thing to do. Um, and I was only 16, 17 years old. And then in, after two years, um, I was in a relationship and I got dumped and, uh, I think it was my first love. Mm or I was really desperate for love. Mm. Um, after uh, my ex-boyfriend broke my heart, I was binge drinking and smoking and I was miserable. And um, that time a friend of mine was going to a, a yoga class and I was like, okay, apparently if it's hot yoga, you lose weight. <laughs> Typical 19 years old girl, right? So I was like, okay, I'll try. And I got hooked. Um, and then at that time I was living about an hour away from the studio because there wasn't many yoga studios in Montreal and it was a karma class. It was a $5 class every Friday at 7 30 PM. I would just take the bus all the way down to downtown Montreal to take 90 minute class for $5. And I, I come back all the way back. Oh my God. So it was like a uh, three and a half hour commitment, basically. Yeah. Wow. For a $5, 90 minute class. It's crazy, right? Yeah. I but mean, I, that, yeah, it was serving a purpose. It was meeting a need that you had at the time. Yeah. And I think for the first time I felt good in my body. Mm -hmm. And at the end of three months, I was able to see myself in a mirror and I'm okay. And I, I was able to cry um, because I think the booze and, you know, um, smoking was just kind of to patch everything up to not feel okay, you know, to feel okay, being not okay, just kind of like covering it up. And as I started to practice yoga daily, weekly, it started to melt things away. 
Yeah. And I was wearing heavy makeup to no makeup, um, eating a lot of junk food to healthy diet. My body was saying no to those things, um, no to, you know, cigarettes and alcohol because it didn't resonate with me anymore. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And when I was moving to Sydney, I had a six months break and that was like about three years in after my, I started to practice yoga and I only knew asana. Like I didn't know beyond asana. Um, so I was like, okay, I want to do this yoga teacher training uh, one month in Byron Bay, Australia. So I registered. I had no money. I was a student. My, my brother paid it for me. Mm. <laughs> and every single day of that training, I cried. Um, we had to do eye gazing meditation every single morning and every single morning I was in tears and I'm like, what's wrong with me? It's because of, you know, childhood memory of me not, um, not being able to cry. My, my family always told me, don't, don't cry. Don't be a girl. Don't, don't cry don't show your emotions. And I was filled with emotions. So when I got seen by people, I couldn't hold my tear back. And that was the time also I started my relationship with my, my husband. And I didn't believe in true love because my parents came from you know divorce, especially in Japan that time when I was a child, divorce was such a taboo thing. And I hid the fact my parents got divorced from all of my friends for three years. I was 80 years old. To hide something, that's a lot of shameful things, right? So when I started to date him and be in a relationship, I was already planning how to escape. Hmm. Although I was so in love, and that training just made me realize my path and my parents' path are different. And then if I can, if I can continue to go forward in my path, I'm able to cleanse the karma of my family. Mm. Yeah. So... <laughs> That was a long story of how I came it's, to yoga. It's so good. Like multiple times, I'm just like, there are, I feel emotion coming through my eyes. I really, really, I, I mean, the, when you said a few minutes ago that you were able to look at yourself in the mirror for the first time after you started practicing for a while, like that really lands with me really, really deeply. Um, hearing that you were taught not to cry. Um, while you had all this emotion in you, that lands with me really, really deeply. Those of us who are socialized female, I mean, it also people who are socialized male are getting the same messages in very different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had very, I, it really, hearing you talk about it, I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had no intention to teach, to be honest, when I first started my teacher training and I as I started my practicum, I just enjoyed teaching. I just enjoyed holding space for, for people, seeing people getting relaxed and chill and connecting with their body. I was like, oh my God, is this something that I can do? Mm -hmm. um, 
so after that, I, when I moved to Sydney, I start look for a job at yoga studios. And that's how I started to teach in 2012. Hmm. Not 2012, 20, uh, 2009. My timeline is messed up today. 2009. Yeah. 12 years. Oh boy. And added a long time. I mean, it sounds like about the same length as your relationship too, which is such an interesting oh, yeah. parallel. Um, and I love that you know, for you just being witnessed in the way that you were in that teacher training, that that's what, when you felt that space open up for you, that that's what inspired you to do that for other people. Um, I know not all of our listeners are yoga practitioners or yoga teachers, although I think a lot are, um, but that was definitely my experience. And I hear that from a lot of folks. Yeah. Tristan's raising their hand. Um, I have a a dear friend in Seattle who's in her teacher training now. And she started being like, I don't think I'm going to teach, but it's such a transformative experience. I hear lots of people say, I don't think I'm going to teach. And then as they go through, they realize how powerful of a tool it is just to sit still and to be with ourselves in that way. It's really radical. Mm-hmm. And I think because of me moving around and my, my experience as an immigrant um, made it possible for me to, to hold space for people in a, in a very comforting way. Um, because I was only 22 when I started to teach. I'm like life experience of 22 is not that deep, but people just kept coming because I will talk about my life honestly with people and they, they were able to relate to me like that, um, even though I was a young um, yoga professional. Yeah, and we met because you, as part of, I think your yoga teacher training, were in a workshop that Charlie and I co-taught for Skill in Action. And one of the first exercises we do, even in the super short version of those workshops, is where I'm from. And you write this poem and, and talk about like where you come from, not just literally in terms of the land, but what experiences you've brought with you and what your family life was like. And the reason that's so important is like it, that helps you deeply connect with people on a totally different level than we're taught to in this culture. And I'm wondering if, you know, that experience of being that teacher for people, is that what led you into bringing justice into your yoga too? Or was that kind of already happening for you? Um, I was always interested in learning different cultures um, since I was a kid. And in university, um, at university, I studied anthropology. And I was just, you know, reading all sorts of things about different culture, different people, different lineages. Um, and especially when I was in Sydney, a lot of the professors were teaching about um, South, Southeast Asia culture. And they were talking about uh, prostitution, tourism pr- prostitution in Thailand and Philippines. And I, I always knew there was an injustice, um, like before, it's such a naive thing to think before um, wanting to become a yoga teacher. One thing that I was thinking was I want to continue the study of anthropology and maybe go to um, a country in Africa so that I could serve the community. So that was like something that I had back in my mind. And I was talking to my dad one time and told my dad, I was like, dad, I think this is my dream. I wanna continue my study for anthropology, maybe I do a master degree and help people. And he goes, Asami, look around around you because there are so many people who need your help. And I'm like, huh, what do you mean? Who needs my help? 
And that switched gear for me. I don't need to travel too far away in order for me to help people. And I think um, seeing people transform their life through the yoga practice when they attended my classes or retreat helped me understand what my dad was talking about. Um, and the justice work came in because many things actually. So the big picture of international justice was always there, um, but I was struggling as a yoga teacher here in Montreal. So when I started to teach in Sydney, my first boss was um, Singaporean woman. And I had um, biracial teacher teaching over there, myself teaching over there. So the teacher lineup was already diverse in that sense. Um, predominantly white, uh, not white, female oriented um, lineup of teacher, but for racial background, I felt it was very diverse. Um, when I moved here, that was the completely different story. Most of the yoga studio lineup was predominantly white, um, cisgendered woman. And even though I had so many years um, of experience, I wasn't progressing in my career. Um, a lot of my co colleagues were um, asked to lead teacher trainings for the studio or asked to present at the festivals. And I'm sitting back and I'm like, well, what's happening? You know, getting ambassadorship at the brands. And I'm like, why isn't landing for me? And sometimes I didn't understand that student didn't trust me. When I sit up and teach a class, and if it's their first time seeing me, they will be like, oh, you're the teacher. Or sometimes, even though I'm the, the person who's signing to students, they will ask me, where's the teacher? And I'm like, I'm here. And I had to list my credential. I had to make sure that I'm a good teacher. I'm, I'm dedicated studious teacher that who devote my time and effort and finance to studying yoga but I felt my students were recognizing it but the bigger picture wasn't and there's one time there's few times that I I had these comments one was one was um one of the studio owner telling us that she was covered in diversity because there is a black yoga teacher and myself on the team lineup. Oof. And then I'm like, wait a second, did I get a job because I'm Asian? Mm. And other time, um, I, I actually asked for a raise. And she said, one of, not, not the same owner, but the different owner said, you're privileged to ask those things and I'm like hmm maybe entitled to ask but maybe not privilege because I had to wait I, I had to fight my way through to get here and but that time I didn't understand and what I said was I'm sorry hmm. and I was talking to my friends and they're like you can't say sorry she can't say you're privileged. And I'm like, why? It was, I think that was 2018. 
and I didn't understand. Um, and um, I have a teacher in Boulder, Colorado. Um, her name is Amy Politi, um, and she's very vocal about Amer American politics and injustices. And studying with her made me realize, oh, actually these injustices um, is apparent in yoga communities. And as I started to contemplate on my own privilege um, and also my skin color and who I am, I finally understood why I wasn't getting those big jobs, even though I'm much more qualified than other teachers who got chosen to do it. And so interesting enough, um, about two years ago, I went public about it, um, sharing that these are the things that I got commented and this is not okay. And a lot of my yoga teacher colleagues, they were like, I didn't know you were feeling that way. Well, I wasn't talking about it. And then also you weren't interested about it. <laughs> and also it's not okay to talk about it right now. Um, so since that moment two years ago in May, I really dove into social justice in yoga. That's how I discovered Michelle Cassandra Johnson. That's how, I think that's how I discovered you, Tristan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting because my first workshop with Michelle was um, 2018. Uh, the first time I, I took a workshop from her, I had read her book. Um, and to me, though, I also was like, I studied human rights in my graduate program. I had been studying human rights on some level since I was in high school, but I was constantly looking elsewhere. I was looking at Latin America. I was looking um, at Spanish speaking countries. I was looking at US intervention in those countries. And, and I understood that I was missing something very key here in this country. Um, and that on some level I was missing that because of our my education didn't offer that understanding to me. Um, my education experience uh, gaslit me into thinking that this country was a democracy and that everybody was experiencing freedom and equality. Um, and, you know, I was starting to read the books, like the books, all caps, you know, um, on, on, on anti-Blackness in this country. And when I went through Michelle's workshop, that really blew me open to understanding what was happening in yoga spaces that I couldn't see as a white person. Um, and it really blew me open to, to understanding what role I might have in that conversation and how I might um, bring that into my work in supporting yoga and wellness professionals. And so it's just interesting to me to hear you talk about your trajectory and all of this as someone who is experiencing it firsthand, but didn't necessarily have the understanding of identifying that that's what you were experiencing, which by the way, Rauda Raman, who's also been on the podcast, spoke to that very similar experience. Like she knew she was experiencing something, but she didn't have the language to identify it. Um, and Michelle's work gave her that language. And it's just, I mean, I will forever, I say this all the time, I will forever be grateful for Michelle and her work. I can feel myself getting emotional. And I'm gonna forever be grateful for the way that she has, has brought us all together in this conversation. Like she's enlightened all of our brains. She's, she's blown up our understanding of what's really happening and how we talk about it. And then she's brought us all together in this enormous community. And I, I mean, I know she knows it, but 
it's just really, it's really touching to be on, you know, in Zoom space after Zoom space in these conversations for the podcast and to each be talking about the way that her work landed with us at times when we really needed it um, and helped us move our own work in justice and in yoga forward, which it sounds like it really did for you. Yeah. I would add that though, because, because, you know, me being idolizing North American culture, mm. when I, I think entered into yoga communities, what I experienced was proximity to whiteness. Yeah. And then I wanted to belong to that culture. I wanted to belong to that community. And yoga community in all, it looks inclusive, yeah. welcoming to people like myself, but it's actually not. And the first time actually um, when I understood what was happening was reading White Fragility. And I couldn't finish it because I was so angry. I was just so angry about the fact that I was blinded. And then when I discovered Michelle's work and started to read Skill in Action, also like, I think binge listen all her podcasts interviews <laughs> I just like oh my god this person is amazing amazing I just need to listen to her speak and gave me the language to speak about it and understood that this is something that we need to talk about and I have to say in Montreal yoga community um, um, until last year nobody wanted to talk about it until George Floyd's murder Nobody wanted to talk about it. If I brought it up, they will actually feel scared of me because I'm talking something big and I'm talking something that it is taboo to talk about, unwelcome to talk about. And I think to this day, some, some people may think I'm a little bit outspoken about it, but the hell gotta that's gotta do what do we gotta do i was gonna say that's a them problem not a you problem yeah. <laughs> um i also i want to back up just for a second because you you mentioned um specific experiences of checking people in for class and even then students i'm assuming mostly white folks not realizing you were the teacher and being surprised i have heard that from probably every single yoga teacher of color I've ever had this conversation with. Um, and so it, it's just interesting that I, I appreciate you naming that the yoga industry and the yoga spaces, we have always talked this big game of inclusion and all are welcome and yoga is for everyone. But in practice, the fact that that story is identical across so many different people I know is such a clear indication of how systemic racism is playing out in these spaces still because of the culture that we're in. Um, and I also wanted to say, if you're ever in Boulder for Amy's classes, I hope that we can hang out because I'm so close to there. I know. <laughs> um, uh, also, sorry, my brain is jumping around a lot today because of the coffee and the lack of sleep. Um, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to bring up was how um, you got angry reading White Fragility. Um, Charlie and I have had this conversation. Charlie, who I referred to her a couple of times, but for people who don't know, she and I co-teach an anti-racism course. We collaborate on a lot of different stuff. Um, and we were using Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad um, for the white folks in our course and then Skill in Action for folks of color. 
And she was sharing how, you know, reading a book like Me and White Supremacy or um, White Fragility, it can be useful for folks of color, but that it's not really geared toward that group because like you, you understand this, you're living it already. And so it can be like extremely triggering and almost harmful sometimes to try to use that as a resource for yourself when actually what you need is healing and someone like Michelle to validate the experience that you're having and give you language. It sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I tried to read different books um, and which were uh, geared towards to um, white folks. And it was really challenging for me, but at the same time, Asians are really hard to um, to navigate in this world because we're not white, but we're not black. We're in the middle, um, considered as model model minorities, and it's it's just like where can what can I read or understand? Who can I listen in order for me to understand my trauma? Mm-hmm. And also, what is the responsibility of East Asian? I'm from Japan. Japan colonized majority of Asia. So inside of me, there is superiority towards other Asian countries, other Asian people. So how can I dismantle that? How can I understand my own privilege? You know, so it it was just really interesting for me to understand those layers of um, systemic oppression, my own privileges, um, and how I... I can play a role in this world, especially, um, you know, last year when the resurgence of Black Lives Matter was happening, Black folks need to rest. Asian like myself can go forward. And then especially after Atlanta um, spa mass shooting, that time I needed to rest and then other people needed to rise. So like, how can we as people of color could, rally each other and help each other. And for me, that's important. Yeah, what I'm hearing you name is the difference between solidarity and mutuality. Mm. Um, And I'm not, I feel like I say a lot on this podcast, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm probably gonna say this wrong, but it's, it's the difference between I'm here beside you for you versus you know, we're, we're in a relationship and there's that lean in, lean out that you're describing. Um, I also, if it's okay, I'd like to go back to what you said about how yoga spaces overall um, weren't really paying attention to racism or even acknowledging it until last year. And I know from the work that I do, it seems like there's a waning interest now um, and the urgency is kind of gone. Um, for yoga spaces and the industry as a whole to really look at this. And I would imagine that's perhaps across other industries. So has that been your experience too in the last year now that we're literally at the one year mark of our colorful yoga and then what happened last summer? Um, Yes, a lot of people were interested at the beginning for sure. Maybe up to the end of 2020. And then, but it's, it's, it's so hard right now because we're in pandemic and the yoga studios are struggling. Yoga teachers are struggling. And then talking about injustice, it's just a layers upon layers, right? Like, so what or which ones do we need to prioritize? I mean, people are dying. So injustice needs to be prioritized, but also yoga studios struggling to make money 
to pay teachers, pay themselves. They, they are at the cusp, cusp of, you know, bankruptcy sometimes. So urgency is needed in some cases, but I can't, I can't um, blame people if they're not acting urgently. I am, I'm hoping that, you know, as the vaccine rolls out quickly and people start to feel comfortable um, going outside and, you know, if the economy go back to quotation mark normal, this justice work will pick up because I know people are still interested, but I'm not sure people are actively studying or actively dismantling or actively wanting to build relationship with each other. Especially last year in June, I got a lot of phone calls from people, um, mostly yoga studio owners or yoga, senior yoga teachers wanted to talk about my experience. And I'm like, now? Do you want to talk about it now? Because I'm kind of busy. <laughs> um, and then that almost died down now. I don't think it's a good sign. Yeah, because I, I also wonder, you know, um, if we're pitting, you know, thriving as a business against this work, which in my mind, they actually go together so perfectly. Because if you're doing this work, you are going to attract a more diverse student base, more diverse teachers, if we're talking about yoga studios, like you're going to be um, actually leveraging <laughs> like your right. your business in that way too. Um, and I, I also think that as things fall apart, like how are we rebuilding in a way that has justice built into what we're doing? Because um, the, the spaces that I see continuing to work and to even thrive in some cases are the ones who are committed to this work and building relationships. And it doesn't mean that the work always looks like paying thousands of dollars to bring in a trainer. Because um, there are a lot of no cost or low cost ways to stay in it. And sometimes I think there's this dichotomy of I'm either doing my business or doing this work. And I've encountered that from a lot of white folks who I've tried to call in over the years. And um, I don't think it serves anybody, including them. Mm. That's so, an interesting point. Yeah. Because I've, I've seen in Montreal, people are you know hosting conversation or bringing you know, diversity panels whatnot but it seems so superficial yeah like surface yeah it doesn't feel they're trying to build relationships and then that's something that I'm I want that you know I thought I was actually thinking people would reach out to me more mm -hmm. that to build a relationship and have a conversation but it's not that's not the case are they scared of me maybe they might feel uncomfortable to talk about it. That's good. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of still waiting for that. And another interesting thing is since, you know, about a year and a half that I, I've been involved in communities that who are doing the work. So I, I, I no longer teach at yoga studios that who's not doing the work, you know? So maybe I'm not seeing things because I'm not in their community. So I can't really say they're not doing their work. Mm -hmm. I'm, I might just not seeing it. And I, I like being in a community with folks that who are doing the work because 
it makes me feel comfortable to be in that space. Right. Because it's actually relational and not like a transactional, hey, can we pay you to do this workshop and then check a box and send you on your merry way? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've heard you say relationship several times and I just want to highlight that, underscore it, bold it. <laughs> all the always, always. Yeah. yeah. Tell us, Asami, more about our colorful yoga because it feels like a good moment to come back to that in this conversation. I, you had introduced that organization at the beginning of our time together, but I'd love to hear a bit more about what you're all up to. Sure. So I had a dream. I had a vision, Aquarius myself, um, in 2019, November. I was involved in a um, um, group called Lululemon Luminaries. So um, 14, almost 20 actually women of color were invited to come to the community together and do self-care and talk about things. And I just met incredible people in Montreal that who are doing justice work. And they were hosting, you know, community events and just kind of building um, relationship again, underscore relationship <laughs> with all the folks. And I was like, oh my God, why don't we have that in yoga communities? And I started to have this vision of, I wish there is a place that people can come together without any judgment and being able to talk honestly about our traumas, racial traumas, um, and demand justice, diversity, representation. What does it mean to be truly inclusive? Um, that was November, 2019. And then, you know, life gets busy and um, pandemic hits. I was struggling with, you know, finance and everything. And at the end of May, George Floyd happens and I remember at the beginning, beginning of pandemic, um, Asian hate was already rising and I was afraid to go outside on my own at night. And I remember the feeling of being the target. Um, before the pan like right before the pandemic, I was coming back from Nicaragua and I was sitting at the airport at the gate and no one was sitting around me at, at Atlanta Airport, International Airport. And then I was wondering why. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm Asian. They don't know where I come from. They might think I'm coming from China. Mm. And then I was like, oh yeah, I wish I have a mask. But maybe if I wear a mask, I'll be the target and people want to not sit with me even more. Do I need to show off my like North American accent to tell them I, I don't live there. You know, those thoughts are just going and going. And if that was my experience, I was wondering what, what Black folks are feeling at this moment in June, 2020. And I was like, okay, if I needed the space at that time to feel safe, they need the space right now. And I was already talking with my friends, um, um, one, one particular friend, Kimiko Taohujimoto, she lives here. Um, she's a um, um, fourth generation Japanese, half Japanese American, um, Japanese American yoga teacher and also healer. We were thinking like, oh, we should do like a storytelling for you know, different color folks and it would be interesting. And we were, thinking to launch the project as your colorful stories 
And then when June hits, I was like, can we shift and then can we do our colorful yoga so that people of color can come and practice together, led by um, BIPOC yoga teachers, and so that they see their representation and then feel comfort in their presence. And then I was like, okay, let's do it. And we launched it um, in second week of June. Yeah. So I did not think it will go that well, to be honest with you. I thought it was like a summer project or something like that. Um, but it got picked up so well by people. People wanted that. And also, um, white yoga teacher, they wanted to learn about justice work as well. So our colorful yoga is a balance of um, creating space for BIPOC and or LGBTQIA2 plus folks to come and practice together. And then the other part is to educate yoga communities about injustice that we face in the world and in yoga communities in general. So those are the two things that we're focusing on and also telling the stories of, um, of who we are, where we come from. Uh, my lineage, other teachers' lineage, um, learning about you know, herbs that they take or the teas that they drink or rituals that they do, the prayers that they do. Um, so those are the you know, things that we're doing and also, um, it's, it's so fascinating to see how much we've grown in this just one year. Um, we were, we hosted a couple different conversation. One is called uh, Rising Together. And we were talking about um, our trauma in yoga communities. We had three BIPOC yoga teacher and meditation teachers speaking about their experiences in yoga and meditation communities. And then there were a lot of white folks coming in and also studio owners coming in to listen to, listen to that conversation. And another big part of our organization is to honor the lineages and appreciate the culture and the study of yoga. So we had another conversation called um, Roots of Yoga, um, inviting um, Indian yoga teacher in India who's been teaching over 25 years to come and speak about the history and different lineages of yoga as well. So I feel like we stretch ourselves kind of in a different direction, but those are the actually one of uh, the, the core thing that we do um, and advocating for youth mental health and how we can use yoga and meditation for their well-being as well. Okay. So we did a lot of thing in one year. It's, it's amazing. It's fascinating. Um, but again, I have this mentality of urgency. Like I want to get things done and like keep it going. And then I burnt out. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think if our justice work is too urgent, it might be superficial. Mm. That's the quote for this. Yep, that's the quote right there, Asami. <laughs> hey, say more. I want to hear you say more. Well, because you can't fix wounded country or community or society in a day. 
we like as Lauren said, we can't just hire thousand, you know, equity teacher and instructor for a thousand 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 dollars and think we're fixed. It's actually a daily, momentary, everyday activities, behavior change that we need to look at. So I knew that, but when I'm running an organization, because I'm so passionate about it, I want things to get done so quickly. And I realized at the end of last year, this is not the way to go. And that was a hard realization because I want things to get better. And then I remember in 20, I think 2019, I was talking to one of meditation teacher here in Montreal, Dawn Mauricio. Um, she was saying that this is a long, lifelong journey. You have to think that racism will not go away in this lifetime, our lifetime. We're doing it for the generations to come. And I was like, I don't want to hear this because I don't like it. And then it's true. And I think, you know, last year around November, I said to myself, I do this work for my kids. I don't have kids yet, but I'm doing it for my children because he, she, they will look Asian. My struggle, you know, and I want the society to look different when they grow up or when they're growing up. I want them to feel free. I want them to take a deep breath in and exhale out with no hesitation. I don't want them to feel that they have to hide at the airport because coronavirus is going around, you know? I, I don't want that. So I think at the beginning of my journey, I was doing this justice work for selfish reasons, for me to achieve my career, to go through my, you know, I want to advance my career. That was like 2018 Asami and then 2021 Asami is like, no, <laughs> it might take slow and that's okay. And we have a lot of dream for our colorful yoga too. But those things that I named continue to talk about injustices, sharing our stories of where we come from, what we do, honoring yoga and advocating for youth wealth because they're our future. So that is like our, the big purpose and visions that we have, but we are always changing and that's okay. And, and I remember, um, Another story hearing from Dawn, she was saying she was at the um, indigenous com community in, in, um, in America somewhere, I can't remember. And they were hundreds of people and they were doing a smudging ceremony. And you know, people are like, let's go. But she was saying that people were taking time to smudge each and individual because this current society you know dominant culture is just so fast look at the news cycle every single day it's different news and I can't remember what we were talking about a, a month ago but if we want to change something the speed needs to dial down hundred 
and so that people can actually heal and change. I, I, I would like to ask you about your experience with burnout from a very selfish standpoint and perspective. I, I would love to hear how you recognized you were burnt out. What was it that was, that was like the symptoms and then what it looked like for you to respond and honor that and, and make adjustments to take care of yourself? I was becoming resentful for the work. This is my passion. And then like right now, as I'm talking, I'm sweating because I'm just like Leo in me is just like so hot. <laughs> um, but I was becoming so resentful. And then I had to sit down and ask myself, why am I being resentful? Isn't it your passion? Don't you see, like, didn't you want to see the world to be better? And why are you resentful? And that was like the symptom. And when I'm resentful, I don't want to work. So I was kind of like laying back and resting, quotation mark. And, and then that time I had to say, okay, we need to slow down. I need to slow down. And then also last year, I put my 120% to our colorful yoga and my own business, Asami Yoga, was slightly neglected and it was affecting me financially. So I was thinking, how can I balance the two? And the reason that I was able to come into the conclusion of I burnt out, we need to slow down, is because it is urgent, but it can't be urgent. And my life is my life still. I still have bills to pay. I still have, you know, things to do and food to buy, rent to pay. Then these works needs to be simultaneously parallel with one another. And I, maybe I can't spend 25 hours of my week devoting to our colorful yoga, but it's okay. Because I have a team of people that who, are, who has the shared values. So it's not everything is on my shoulders. And as a passionate being, I was feeling that I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to keep going. This is not an individual thing. Like when we want to change society, it's on a collective endeavor. And if I have that, like I have an amazing team of people, then why don't I lean into that? Yeah, community is sustainability for this work. Mm. And I, I think, um, especially when like there's a, a calling to do it, sometimes that energy can be really great, right? Like you can dive in. Sometimes that's what you need to catalyze something, but that's not going to carry you through <laughs> for the long haul, unfortunately. Um, and what, I, what I've also heard you say without using this word a few times is basically non-attachment to outcomes. Like you, it sounds like you're holding our colorful yoga and your role in justice work and in changing things very like gently and, and lightly and being open to things evolving and changing, whether that's the role you're playing, what our colorful yoga is actually doing, 
you know, changing the the balance between your own separate work and the collective work you're doing. So I, I hope that that's something people take away from this, that it doesn't have to be like a 12 month plan that you just stick to no matter what's going on. Like that, that's white supremacy culture crap. Like we don't need more of that. What we need are people like what you're describing Asami who hold that work lightly and do it with an honoring, like you said, of the urgency because people are dying. Like the work is urgent and we can't always do it urgently, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is that realization came so recently um, when, when I was burnt out and, you know, feeling that I, I had everything on my shoulder kind of thing. Um, what I realized was I was also afraid to lose my power as an, a founder, you know, like as an NPO, this is more like a business organizational standpoint. When you, um, found an NPO, there are board of directors who are, who have the same powers as I am. And I was afraid to distribute the power. And it's not like I, I always wanted to be the head or the face of the organization. But again, that's actually white supremacy inside of me. If I want to orient community then I actually need to step back. I actually need to kind of like blend into the colorful. So the, so the people that who need more spot, like spotlight can shine because because of me being outspoken, I, I actually had an opportunity to speak. And then if other teachers, other um, BIPOC yoga teachers or meditation teachers hasn't spoken yet, then I want to pass the opportunity, share the, the stage with them. And then I want to step back. But it's, it was so hard to come to that because as a person that who were in the shadow for a while and realizing that there is an injustice that doesn't allow me to shine. When I got to shine, I was like, ooh, maybe this is my time, but I, but that's not the way it is to actually realize that, that I, if I'm hoarding power or spotlight, I am contributing to that systemic oppression, then that's not how I want to be. A lot of tears though, when I realized that, because I think there's so much letting go happens when you do that, right? And there's also shame that comes up. I mean, there's so many messy emotions when you realize like, oh crap, I'm playing into this thing I'm fighting against in my own way. And there's so much wisdom in what you just said. And it's like, we don't need a bunch of stars. We need people in constellations. Like that, that's kind of how I think about it. Like we, we all get to shine when we do it together versus just pivoting back and forth between different individuals. Mm. And I never said this in public. <laughs> ah, well, it's such a, it's a gift too, because a lot of people won't, you know? Um, and and I, I watch a lot of folks in this space, this work, build a platform for themselves that way. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently. And we all 
you know, deserve to make a good living and um, be heard. But what I do see sometimes is what you're describing. And I've definitely fallen into that too. And so um, it's helpful to hear someone actually name it and talk about it. Cause it's hard to see when it's you. Mm. Yeah. But I have amazing people around me who point, point that to me. Right. Relationships. It's, it's, it's not easy to listen. Yeah. I get defensive and then I get hurt. But in that moment, that was my reaction. And then when I retreat back and then I sit with myself and I ask myself, what is the biggest picture? Mm-hmm. What is the biggest picture that I want? And then the thing is, I'm not in it yeah. because I'm so blended, mm-hmm. which is good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's collective liberation. Mm. Yeah. This was so good. Um, I want to be sensitive to our time. Uh, So I will ask, um, is there anything you want to say that you haven't said, Asami? Um, And is there any part of your work that you want to highlight? The mentorship offering that you have, um, the yin offerings that you have, uh, the Patreon work that you do, anything that you want to like make sure to mention and is there if there's anything you didn't say that you want to say or anything you want to say again yeah um so our colorful yoga is our organization that we run together and it's geared towards um justice in yoga and my business asami yoga i teach weekly live classes um i teach retreats i teach trainings and i run mentorship as well so as I said, I've been teaching 12 years in <laughs> different countries, different communities. So, and um, I have different training. So I'm at the position right now where I can really listen and help yoga teachers to achieve their goals. That could be, you know, running a retreat or how to um, hone their authentic voice. Um, Recently, I saw an Instagram posting, are you a yoga teacher or are you an asana teacher? Mm. I want to call myself as a yoga teacher and I want to um, help other yoga teachers to become yoga teachers. And I would like to help yoga teachers to find their voice because it's easy to copy paste one another, but to actually speak from their heart, it, it requires contemplation, Um, introspection and tons of honesty so that is uh, one of my mentorship program and then I also have patreon and patreon actually includes like live stream classes and also pre-recorded classes I record meditation and I also give snippets of mentorship um, on podcast style (laughs) so I talk about like how to create a themed yoga class how to Um, sequence a yoga class and I also talk about justice as well how to create an inclusive um, yoga class how to use inclusive language in yoga class so that people feel comfortable um, to to attend to people's classes it's so interesting though because I have a lot of students in Montreal that who've been coming to my classes for eight years and then they see my progression they see how I change my language how I as a person as a teacher and everything and they 
reminds me how much I've been doing the work and showing up for the community. So it's a nice, um, nice reminder from, from my students. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing more about your work and where folks can find you. And thank you for this. It was such a great, great conversation, Asami. Thank you, truly. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Lauren, is there anything you want to say or add or ask before we wrap up? No, just I'll also just say thank you. Um, this was just so lovely. And, um, you know, we haven't recorded in a few weeks. And so this is a really beautiful conversation to come back to. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. And it's good <laughs> to see you and meet you, even if it's just virtual for now. One day, one day in person. <laughs> one day, one yeah. day. Yeah. I'll see you soon, though, because um, I think it's next month, you, um, Tristan, you're teaching for Michelle, no? Oh yeah, I think it's next week actually. So I'll oh, see you next in, week. I'll see you in a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Asami. Thank you. All the fuck in is independently produced by your hosts Tristan Katz and Lauren Roberts. To help us keep bringing you new episodes on all things social justice and entrepreneurship, you can donate over on our website at alltfnpodcast.com. That's a l l t f i n podcast.com. Your donation supports original content that promotes social justice and individual and collective change. A portion of our proceeds benefits a radical organization of our choosing each month. Any amount is helpful and greatly appreciated. Death, 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 death